Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That would be me. Awfully glad you're joining me today. I want you to biblically respond to the gospel. That's what I want every listener to do. Here's something you can know. It's a promise. Uh, Romans eight thirty-eight to 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we know. Isn't that wonderful? All right, we're going to have uh, Jarrett Stepman sitting in for Rob Bluey today, and then uh, Dr. Ann Bradley is on the program in the first hour. It's going to be awesome. Let's take 60 seconds and bring on Jarrett. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, Nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. How true that is. It is so important to learn and grow in our faith by getting into God's word every day. Faith Radio can help with that. Just go to MyFaithRadio.com and sign up for the verse of the day. You'll receive a daily email with scripture and encouragement. Or sign up through a web link by texting the word verse to 555-888. Keep growing in your faith with the Faith Radio verse of the day. So I'm told I'm supposed to be creative with my romance this month. So honey, I've got my work belt on and I'm ready to knock down some walls. You may have an idea or two up your sleeve, but no act of love was more creative than God putting on more than a work belt. He put on flesh to feel our pain, our joy, to really know us, and then carried our shame to a cross so we could know Him. It's the greatest love story ever told, and He's still telling it to you today. Faith Radio. All right, you know that's Rob Bluey's walk-up music, but he is not with us today. Instead, Jarrett Stepman's going to be joining us. He's a contributor at The Daily Signal, and he's also the co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. And he's also author of his book, The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite America's Past. Jarrett, welcome back. Thank you very much. All right, Jarrett, recently you did a, a great story at The Daily Signal about the coronavirus and, and the, chi- the Chinese response to it. I find that fascinating. Yeah, I think this is really an important part of this whole story. Of course, the spread of this strain of coronavirus in China and the the Wuhan province has been uh, incredibly worrying. Uh, I think it's been something that, especially you know, here in the United States, across the world, people following this because, of course, uh, the potential for a pandemic is is quite serious. Uh, and it, it is something to be noted. You know, obviously we have not had a massive worldwide pandemic recently, but in 1917 we did have one that infected about a third of the world's population. So, so very, very kind of serious stuff. Uh, I think what's important to note through all this has been the response of, of China from the very beginning. And of course, this is still a communist authoritarian regime. Now, I know they've made some advancements economically. They, they've moved toward a more capitalist economy, but they still have a very tightly controlled uh, regime that tightly controls information in particular. In fact, this has actually gotten a lot worse in the last few decades, especially since the, the last uh, SARS outbreak, which took place in 2003. They've actually had greater controls uh, of, of media in the country. And I think 
one of the big problems is initially when when reports started to sort of leak out that this was happening, uh, they very much controlled the amount of information that was gained to regular people. They were controlling uh, information going through WhatsApp and other messaging services. They were not allowing uh, news reports to get information to people. And of course, dealing with something like this, which is uh, you know, a spreadable disease, you know, it does require getting information into the hands of people so that people can take precautions to protect themselves. Because China is so focused on controlling the flow of information, anything that would make the, the regime potentially look bad, I think it allowed this thing to really kind of break out beyond uh, really what it could have been. And of course, now, you know, even now, we don't really know if the reports coming out of the country are accurate in any sense. I mean, we're getting kind of daily totals of who's getting sick and who is dying, but it's hard to really trust anything coming out of the regime. And the scary thing is, of course, you know, not just for the people in China who are mostly left in the dark, but uh, globally. I mean, what is the, what happens if this thing really starts to take off and spreads beyond the borders of China, which is it has in a little bit of a sense, but it could become something much bigger. You know, and then, Jared, how much can we really trust? I know you've already uh, mention this, but I mean, even their their official pronouncements, we can't even trust those, can we? No, we can't. I mean, obviously, China's been accused of manipulating economic data and things like this over the years, but this is very worrying. I mean, already the number of cases and deaths has surpassed that of the SARS outbreak, but we really don't know what's going on. Some of the the signs there are very worrying. I mean, their industrial province, which you know Wuhan very much is, has basically been shut down because of this. They appear to be taking very extreme draconian measures to stop this. You know, we don't know exactly what the extent of it is. There's a lot of conflicting information, of course, a lot of videos coming out and pictures coming out online. Who knows if those are true or false or if they're accurate, if they come from this time period. But that really is the kind of result of being under a regime that, that controls information like that. I mean, you can say what you will of uh, you know free countries, Western countries, the United States, and we sometimes get overloaded with information. A lot of it sometimes not correct. Uh, but we do have that information. We have a vibrant civil society. We do have a news media. We have uh, locals, uh, people who are right there at the scene of something happening who will tell their friends, who will tell their neighbors. And we don't control that in our society. And I think that gives us a great advantage when tackling is something especially like this, so that, you know, we don't, I mean, everybody was kind of impressed when China built a, a hospital in 10 days. I think it was a kind of dramatic story, but we have to understand, too, that in a free country, we might have never had to get to the point where we had to build a hospital in 10 days because we had the tools already available. People were already uh, trying to counter something that was breaking out. So I think it is a, a good example of, of the differences in the, the American system uh, versus the Chinese one, which despite some of their advancements, uh, still is very much authoritarian, is very much different, I think, from how people generally in the West uh, think should be run. And I think it's an important, especially as we, we go in the future where there'll be other crises, where there'll be other uh, problems. The differences between, between those systems, I think, will become very apparent. But, I mean, we have to understand, too, there are other things going on right now. I mean, we had this crisis going on in, in Hong Kong where people basically protesting for, for basic rights that I think most people expect, basic democracy, things like this. You know, They're, of course, clamping down on that. 
I think that there's a lot of economic trouble going on in China. Their economy has, has clearly not been as red hot as it has been in recent years. And I think they've had a lot of other troubles. There's even now apparently a cloud of locusts headed their way from, from East Africa that could do further damage to their economy if it, it doesn't look any worse uh, for the regime. And I think very much, especially for this particular uh, regime, uh, legitimacy is a very important thing. And, and as soon as it seems to be that the government uh, doesn't really know what it's doing and things are breaking down, especially under an authoritarian regime, uh, you could look at some very rapid changes very quickly. And I think that that is what they're trying to – they're trying to show people that they're dealing with this competently, that they're dealing with this efficiently. And I think to a lot of outside observers, as we get kind of information, it, it really looks like they've made a hash of this whole situation. They've really allowed a lot of people to get sick, and they've probably endangered the health of not only their own citizens, but people around the globe if this thing really starts to take off. What do you think uh, our response should be? I know there were some people that had come back uh, into the States, and they were interviewing this woman, and she said, we left, and we didn't hear anything, and we assumed no news was good news. It turns out that, that there was an infection with her husband, and now he's been isolated in some kind of isolation uh, room. So they assumed something that wasn't true, and I don't know what kind of information they were getting or not getting, but... You know, it doesn't take too many mistakes like that to spread this thing. It really doesn't. And, and we are probably going to have to be uh, very serious about controlling the people, especially the people who are coming out of China right now. I mean, it's just it's it's the pragmatic reality of what's going on. And I think a lot of pressure needs to be put on the regime that, frankly, the response to this whole thing has been pretty unacceptable. I mean, and the whole point, I mean, trying to counter what could be a very eventually very uh, infectious disease that spreads potentially beyond, well beyond their borders globally, uh, is information. I mean, really, they need to be working uh, with other countries. They can't be doing what they've been doing recently, which is, of course, you know, covering these things up and making information hard to come by. So we don't even really know what we're dealing with. And I think that that's the huge problem here. The United States, I, I think, will, among other countries, put a lot of pressure on them to uh, shine a light as far as what's happening so that we can take the appropriate response, especially when it comes to quarantine, especially when it comes to you know, restricting the movement of people coming out of the country. So uh, this stuff is, is, is very ugly. And, and again, you know, this global pandemics are something that we've been fortunate to avoid, uh, certainly in the last decades, but it's something that's happened in the last century. I mean, we, we kind of forget that the, the deadly pandemic, the flu, flu that went around in, in the 1917 and 1919 range, uh, actually killed more people than, than the battlefields of World War One, And that's a very serious thing. I mean, despite our modern technology, uh, a kind of global pandemic will do an incredible amount of harm economically to mm -hmm. people's lives, and there could be a lot of deaths, too. Yeah, Jared, that was my next question. If you wouldn't mind tagging on to the idea that uh, China is now going to be suffering— uh, with production um, and goods and services, what is that going to do to the world economy? I think it's certainly going to hurt. I mean, the fact that a lot of products are produced in China, a lot of medical equipment, and I think that will be a, a huge concern is, you know, how much can we now supply people who, who need uh, this, this kind of equipment to deal with uh, the infection potentially as it spreads, the virus as it spreads. And certainly the fact that large parts of the Chinese economy are now uh, shutting down, I mean, it really does show uh, the potential for something like this to cause damage beyond just people getting sick. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously what's happening to the Chinese economy right now 
uh, is very bad for them. But you could see this happening elsewhere as well. And I think it could, especially given the fact that you know the U.S. has, has had a, a recent kind of boom time. Our economy has really uh, been taking off in the last few years. I think it has been economically a, a great time for the United States. Uh, if there is some kind of like, spread virus that goes through the country, uh, you could see a lot of economic damage, especially as people become desperate for basic uh, supplies as far as dealing with the actual infections, which there could be shortages and things like this as it spreads to more and more people. So I think there's definitely a huge economic cost involved even now uh, from what's going on in China, but certainly will if this spills on beyond its borders. Mm-hmm. Jared Stepman is my guest of honor. Let me take a little break. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have Jarrett Stepman as my guest today. He is pinch hitting for Rob Bluey. Jarrett is a contributor to The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. Also has written a book called The War on History the conspiracy to rewrite America's past, and he's a patriot, so I love that about Jarrett. Uh, Jarrett, let's talk a little bit about uh, yesterday. It was President's Day, and let's, if you would, comment on why it's so important that we have a strong uh, commander-in-chief. Yeah, I, I think it's a, an important part of President's Day, too. You know, of course, we're, we're celebrating the birthday of most specifically George Washington, but also Abraham Lincoln. Washington kind of setting that first initial example of what a commander-in-chief should be. Now, of course, it's a little unfair to compare any other president to a Washington or Lincoln necessarily, but I think that the the, the role of the president, the presidency, which I think is a very – was kind of unique when it was created in the United States, which – you know, I know there are a lot of people who, who worry that the role of the presidency has kind of grown since the initial attention, and I think in some ways it has. Uh, certainly, I think the agencies around it uh, have, but – uh, let's be honest that the president is kind of the face of the United States of the world. I think you know there is that kind of notion. You know, the leader of the free world. Uh, the president very much speaks that. Now, of course, the president doesn't speak for all Americans, and we shouldn't expect that. But as the face of the world, uh, I think people do expect the, the the U.S. president to be to be strong as far as promoting, I think, American values and the things that that we hold most dear. It's not just simply about uh, the policies, but also uh, promoting Americanism. I mean, we we believe that. The, the values that we hold dear are, in many cases, uh, quite universal, that we have a president who's now willing to defend uh, our civilization, our way of life, the Constitution, uh, the, the American way, so to speak, uh, is is quite a positive, I would say, change. I mean, we, we don't want, you know, I think there are a lot of criticisms of certainly President Barack Obama that, you know, was in many ways apologizing for U.S. foreign policy or, or didn't believe in American exceptionalism. Uh, I think those things are a hallmark of What's made a strong America in the past? I think Americans like to see a president who is genuinely proud of being an American and wants to spread that and promote that elsewhere. And, and while there is a lot of anti-Americanism across the globe, I think for Americans to have that kind of confidence in the presidency, I think is a very important one. And certainly, I think upholds the purpose of the presidency as it was originally created. It's not just; it certainly was not created just as a, as a policy position. It was in many cases to be the kind of face. Of our, of our national government. And, and while our policies are rightfully, I think, created uh, or should be rightfully created by, by the legislative branch in Congress, the presidency has a very important role as far as 
carrying out our, our nation's policies and being that face uh, to the American people and to the world. Mm-hmm. Jared, one of your colleagues, uh, James Carafano, wrote a good uh, story, a good article at the Daily Signal about uh, national security and how, you know, although it's, it is available for every president to listen to what his um, experts are saying, it's not always the step that he's going to take. Yeah, and I, I think that is very important, especially when it comes to the presidency. I mean, you've had many great presidents and some bad ones who, who've had very different management styles. I think, you know, President Donald Trump has his own style that's certainly, I would call, unique. Um, but other presidents, look, some very very much rely on, for instance, the, the deep pass on the Secretary of State. Some rely on a close ring of advisors. And, and, and I think it's important for presidents to be able to bring in those experts. But ultimately, like, like President Truman uh, would say, the buck stops here with the presidency. And the president often has a different perspective than any uh, single national security advisor or any domestic policy advisor. The president has a lot of other factors uh, to consider. I think that's an incredibly important part of the presidency. It's why it's one of the, certainly the, one of the most difficult jobs in the world, because, you know, when you make a decision when it comes to foreign policy, there are all kinds of potential consequences of that down the line. And I think just because we have, of course, we have experts on various policies doesn't mean that they see the whole picture, the way that the presidency, uh, the president does. And I think that's really important, especially when you hear all kinds of news stories saying, well, there's, there's chaos in the White House. The president has fired this person or you know, this person disagrees and they wrote some paper denouncing it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of that stuff that happens in every presidency, yeah. whether or not it's, it's reported by the news or whether it's promoted. I think right now we have a press that particularly likes to promote these ideas that seems to cause you know chaos in the presidency, but that's that's a part of doing business, and that's why uh, you know the American people vote for a person they think uh, can handle those responsibilities and be able to be willing to say even to their top level advisors, the experts, to say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Carafano's uh, article at the Daily Signal made reference to JFK making most all of the tough calls in the Cuban Missile Crisis and Ronald Reagan turning down Gorbachev and his deal, and all of them, you know, they, they emerged with better outcomes. Absolutely. And sometimes even, you know, even people pushing things from their own supporters. I mean, and Reagan, I, I think he's a, he's a great example, not just of that, but of course, one of the most, I think, consequential aspects of his presidency when he went to the Berlin Wall, that line, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, a lot of his advisors wanted him to take that line out of his speech. They mm-hmm. said, well, that is, it's too bombastic. It's too aggressive. I mean, this may make you look absurd. I mean, they're not going to take this down. But it was really a turning point in the Cold War. It was something that, you know, Ronald Reagan believed that the Cold War should should end. He didn't think it should be a, a permanent uh, a division. He didn't think that wall should stay. And, and by basically ignoring the advisors who were telling him, don't do that, the experts say no, uh, he did something that ultimately changed, I think, global politics, I think, for the better. I think that moment now stands in time as one of the great ones of his presidency and one of the great ones in American foreign policy, all because uh, a president is willing to say to some of his top advisors, no, I think we're going to do this things this way. This is a part of my vision uh, for where I want to take this country. And I think that's a very important uh, characteristic of a president uh, not just to always listen to his advisors on everything and just kind of mimic what they do, but to have his own mind and have his own vision and to carry that out. Mm-hmm. And the article also points out that Jimmy Carter, uh, when he decided to pull U.S. troops out of South Korea 
And he was pretty much going it alone on that one. And not even his own Secretary of Defense uh, thought it was a good idea. And he kind of regretted that decision. That's also the downside. Sometimes if you if you don't listen to advisors too, right. you could end up having enormous consequences. And and I think that that is, of course, the, the challenge of the presidency. It's why our political process is so important, and we do have this process to to choose who our presidents are. And of course, the president, you know, chosen by the people by the the process through the electoral college, uh, is one that's it's fraught with many challenges. I mean, we don't always pick somebody who's going to make the right decision all the time. I mean, that's just the reality of the world that we live in. We just you know hope and we pray uh, that our leaders uh, will make the right decisions and will make those those right calls when, look, there's a world of immense amount of information. There's a lot of uh, very smart people on different sides of an issue who tell you diff- different things. And weeding through all of that and getting to the truth and getting to the right thing uh, is, is incredibly difficult. It doesn't matter what kind of expert you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. Uh, that's an incredibly difficult job, especially when you're talking about millions and millions of lives potentially being in your hands. And, and very large consequences uh, for the world. And so, you know, that's why our elections, you know, matter so much, especially in the United States. We talk about the presidency and things like that, because a lot of these decisions will come down to uh, the judgments of, of, of a man and, and then the political process and the consequences that follow from that, which is, is a part of our political system. Mm-hmm. Jared, uh, Walter Williams wrote a great article, too, at The Daily Signal about the uh, political bias and the anti-Americanism on college campuses. A lot of adults don't think that what's going on is having a very positive effect on our nation. Yeah, I think there was a a very interesting study that he highlighted in that piece, and I've written about separately, which is especially the the bias that I think exists in higher education. I think one of the stats that these two researchers came up with is political donations from from college professors went 95 to 1 uh, Democrat, so 95 to every one who donated Republican, which, I mean, if we're talking about a bias, even if those numbers aren't exactly line up right. to, to reality, that's a quite amount of bias. I mean, I don't think you could almost find any profession in America where, if besides maybe people working for the Democrat National Committee, were right. so strongly skewed one way. And yet we are sending American uh, young people to these institutions. I think our, our kind of elite professional class goes through our colleges and universities. And you're really not getting a, a real diversity of opinion. You're really not getting any kind of diversity of thought there. Uh, and so it does make one question that system. And, and the idea that, well, these ideas are only constrained to the humanities or to the, the social sciences and things like this, I would say that's, that's not true these days, especially when you talk about a modern uh, college campus. The kind of ideas, those kind of, especially the far-left ideas, are very pervasive on any uh, most major college campuses today and even bleeds into things like uh, engineering and math. I mean, I had a story earlier this year about a uh, system of, uh, of Seattle schools that are trying to have uh, woke math, politically correct math, where they kind of add some of these ideas to, I mean, basic math kind of problems. And I think that's kind of where things are going. So I think this idea, Americans, of course, have very highly value education, especially higher education, and yet we fund the system that I think is, is very much biased, that often leads to students not getting jobs after they graduate, being saddled with a whole lot of debt. And, and one wonders, you know, is that system really what's best for American young people? Is it best that we simply send them to the system and incur all those costs 
uh, that we as a society have have taken this burden. And I think there are going to be a lot of people who start to rethink that, especially in coming years, especially given the, the bias of a lot of these institutions that I think a lot of people say is, are they really teaching young Americans on top of all this other skills to be to be patriots, to be yeah. civically minded people? And I think that's what the greatest worry of all comes from. Yeah, that's such smart thinking, Jared. Thank you so much for doing the show. Please go treat yourself to a gourmet coffee and send me the bill. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Have a great day. Jared Steppen's been my guest. He's a contributor to the Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. We'll take a short break and then we'll be joined by Dr. Ann Bradley. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the show. You know, it doesn't take much for me to get confused about economics and economic principles. I always go to uh, Dr. Ann Bradley. When it comes to figuring out economic ideas and getting some insights, she's with me on the program today, and welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, you wrote a brilliant piece um, at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, which is tifwe.org for my listeners, and it's called Why Christians Should Care About Economic Ideas. This is really good. Thank you. I, I think we all should care about these ideas. I know, um, but you give us reasons and help us understand why we should care, and that's what makes all the difference. Like well, like a question like this, Anne, I'll let you answer it. Which policies best care for the poor? What a great question. Mm, it is a great question. And I think before we get worried about, um, well, like this political party says I should think this, or this political party thinks I should say, you know, believe this, we really should start with scripture. And so that's what we're very focused on at the Institute. And in my writing, that's what I think about a lot. So, I mean, the bottom line, of course, is that the local church is the hope of the world, which is what um, Paul tells us, and we absolutely have a mandate to care for the poor. And I think that Christians agree on those ideas, but the how is mm-hmm. where we get, you know, a little bit, uh, we get into a little bit of disagreement. And so I think that Christians really need to start with Scripture here, um, and there's a lot of, of biblical references we can go to. Uh, to help us understand. But really, if we go back to Genesis and we look at who we are, we see that we have dignity because God created us. It's not because of our bank account, our job, what our business card says on it. So if you're struggling in a minimum wage job or if you're a CEO on the halls of Wall Street, you have dignity not because of those things, but because of who God created you to be. And what we want is for people to be able to use their God-given skills and gifts and talents to help for the common good, for the flourishing of the common good. And so I think when we rethink poverty in ter- in those terms, we'd stop thinking that it's only about money, right? So I think it's easy to think, well, people who are poor need clothes in the winter, they need food, they need water, they need health care, and they do need all those things. But that's not the only thing they need. So we need to think about why people are poor. And of course, why people are poor in you know, Detroit is going to be different than why they're poor in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so they need help, but the help is going to be different. And all of it comes down, the common thread is relationship. So how can we live Jesus into their lives while also helping them transition out of poverty with material and spiritual and relationship assistance? And Anne, thank you for bringing up that dignity piece. Thank you for saying that, because I've always believed you can bring dignity to any job you have. And it makes me crazy, makes me crazy when people say, I'm just a, and then fill in the blank. Yeah. You know, and how many of us, no matter what we do, feel like I'm just a, fill in the blank, a lot. right? I mean, yeah, I think a lot Yes. Do. 
not every day is glamorous. Not every day is easy. Some Plus days are really challenging. Host, you know. <laughs> and then every day is easy and glamorous. Yeah, of course it is. You said <laughs> well, it, we not me. To do that then. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's true, right? The grass is always greener, of and course. we think um, that whatever we're doing is the hardest thing. And, and some of us are in very hard jobs and, and manual work is very difficult. Agricultural work is very difficult. So it, you know, it's not to say that jobs aren't difficult in different ways, but um, I think the dignity piece is really important because in a, and what we try to talk about is that in a market economy, there's opportunities for all types of skill levels, whether it's, you know, you're 15 years old and you're starting out in the job market, you don't have any experience and you need somebody to give you a job. There's those types of jobs. And then when you've been in the job market for 20 years, there's, you know, you're growing out of those jobs and along that way and growing into, you know, better paying jobs, but that are going to require more hard things. So I think dignity, if we start there, we realize that it's all worthwhile if God calls us to it. And then we need to be obedient to that. All right, let's talk about public debt. It's getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. I mean, both consumer debt and national debt is like unchartable right now. Mm. The question is, what do we do, right? Uh, yeah. And we talk about limiting debt and limiting personal and, and national debt, but it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> it really does not seem to work very well. Yeah, it's a good point. I really like that you brought up, but it's not just a government problem. This is a problem in our personal finances as well. And I think both of those things stem down to or stem back to, um, you know, kind of what we believe about the future, but also what we believe about what we should have right now. So I think consumer debt in large part is living beyond our means. Now, not all debt is bad, by the way. So I don't want to be heard of saying that. You know, there are very important good loans you'll take in your life, whether it's getting a house, um, maybe you need a loan to go get some more education, to start a business. And, you know, family credit cards can be helpful. Uh, So I think they serve a purpose, but I think we can use them um, to be money we don't have, right? And so we just kind of charge away and we don't look at the bill and we pay the minimum. And that's when you can get personally into a lot of trouble. But this, the principle is exactly the same, whether you're talking about state governments, some of which are facing bankruptcy, whether you're talking about the federal government, which really has escalating debt. And so the question is, how long is that tenable? And of course, the answer is not forever. You can't just spend your way, even as the federal government, you know, at some point, uh, they have to service their debt. They have to pay these loans back, these kind of things. So the principle is the same, whether we're talking about our personal lives or our public lives. But I think where we're going wrong is that we just think the future is never going to come. We're never going to have to pay it back. We just kick the can down the road. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in our personal finances, this, this can be really crushing to a family or to a person. And it gets you into a position where, you can't get out of it very easily, you know, without really harming your credit and damaging your future. And I think for the United States, it's the same idea. So we have to change our attitude, both at home and in the public square. Our mm-hmm. attitude at home has to be not, I get everything I want because I have a piece of plastic, but what can I afford and how can I better control my fina- my finances? And I think in the government space, this is true too. I think we have unrealistic expectations about what the government can do for us. And so if we always ask it to do more, it will always do more, even if it's not worthy of doing. Mm-hmm. And are small businesses part of the backbone of a good economy? Absolutely. Okay. 
Absolutely. Now, now, having said that, how much regulation should there be on small businesses? That's a good question. It's also kind of a loaded question um, because it's very open-ended. So I would say (laughs) let's think about regulation with a small r rather than a capital R. And what I mean by that is there's lots of ways in which businesses are regulated. It can be through government-imposed regulations and rules, but it can also be through the competitive market process. And so competition, and this goes back to your first question about, you know, are small businesses the backbone? I think they are. They're they're the sign of a dynamic economy. And what regulates small R, right, these Mm -hmm. businesses is the competition from others. Because when you're a small business, you absolutely need your customers to come back again and again and again. In the same way that Amazon, which is not a small business, needs its customers to come back again and again and again. And so I think that can be a very powerful disciplining mechanism. And of course, that's what we've seen over time is that um, economies who have lots of small businesses tend to thrive. Their economies tend to grow over time. Those small businesses, some grow into medium-sized businesses and some grow into large businesses. Now, the flip side of this is well, you know, do we not need any regulations? And I'm not sure that's the answer, but I think we need to be very careful about what we ask to be regulated because usually we're talking about formal regulations, right? Capital R regulations. We're asking the state, whether it's the local state um, or, you know, all the way up to the federal government, we're asking the state to impose some rules. Now, you may say, well, this sounds really good, right? When I go get heart surgery, I want to make sure my doctor has a license. And of course, Yes, right? So there's a lot of ways to license that process to make sure you're safe. But I think these licenses can be used by people inside the industry to block would-be competitors. In other words, to block new businesses from coming into that industry. Mm. So there's a growing literature in economics, and people are really looking at this more and more to say, gosh, regulations are good if they're protecting the consumer, but if they're protecting the insiders, we don't want that, right, the inciting, insider businesses. So I think we need to really look carefully at what needs to be regulated and then what body is the best body to regulate it. Yeah, and I didn't even think about that, that regulations would be imposed to prevent competition. That doesn't sound fair. Mm-mm. And here's the problem. It really harms the people at the bottom of the income distribution the most. So uh, an example that we're watching is with um, hair braiding. So hair braiding is often performed by African-American women, and in many cases it's in their home. Mm -hmm. They don't need really, you know, they don't need, they're not using chemicals, they're not using scissors. So there's no public health risk. Yet what we're seeing across state after state after state, so I think 32 states at this point, have regulations around hair braiding. And in some states, they're so egregious that you are required to have, you know, um, I don't know, upwards of like 1,500 hours of cosmetology school. Well, the problem is if you can't afford to go to cosmetology school, you can't get into the industry. And so essentially we're blocking people from entering into an entrepreneurial activity. And that's the opposite of what we want to do. And so when we peel the onion back and we say, well, who's clamoring for these hair braiding, you know, regulations, it turns out to be the salons because the salons Mm. who already have brick and mortar stores, they don't want to compete with somebody doing it in their home. So it's a regulation and it's done in the name of public safety. But really what it's doing is it's, it's protecting insiders and it's hurting what I like to call 
micro-entrepreneurship, right? And and we really want to foster that, not yeah, hurt it. No kidding. I bet some of those uh, hairstylists were masters of their craft by age nine. Yes, right? So they bring experience. Right. Yeah, that's got to be a very... Absolutely. It's got to be a very... Um, it's got to be an interesting market where people will go, look, at, I'll just pay you cash and you'll fix my hair and it'll be perfect. Exactly. So yeah. why would we want to stop that? That's yeah. what we have to ask ourselves. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, Dr. Ann Bradley's yeah. my guest. And boy, am I glad she's back on the show. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with more. Back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Ann Bradley back on the program. You can learn more about her at tifwe.org, tifwe.org. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about healthcare. I know that's an always an ever-present subject, and there are many people um, that are pushing for uh, Medicare for all in the political uh, realm. And I'm thinking, uh, you can't force doctors to do stuff. I mean, you still need personnel to do. The job, right? Right. And I mean, to answer that, we could use the law to force doctors to do things, right? And that's kind of where this is going. But your point is well taken, which is that we have to pay for it somehow. <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to still have to pay doctors. You have to, the buildings need to be on and open and have electricity and be well stocked and well supplied. And so what this really comes down to is a question about incentives. You know, I think the question in, in the American healthcare system about how do we reform this is the right question. It's a system that could use improving. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that going to, you know, Medicare for all is the way to do that because it presumes that there's no scarce resources in healthcare. Right. That, you know, if we mandate it, then somehow it's infinite in supply and we're not going to have lines. And of course, if you look at other healthcare systems, Canada is always, is always one that people tend to, who are making this argument, they tend to say, let's be more like Canada. And if you look at what's going on in Canada, there's a lot of lines, there's a lot of waiting, and a lot of Canadians would prefer to have an American-style healthcare system, as imperfect as it is. So we want to figure out how to lower the price, how to increase the quality, and how to increase accessibility. That's Those are the economic questions about how do we improve health care. And, and I think that's where we have to start and say, okay, well, what are what things are slowing that down or making it not work very well? But I think collectivizing it has historically never worked, whichever, you know, regardless of what industry we're talking about. And I don't think it's going to work here. Mm-hmm. Don't we want our doctors to be highly incentivized and motivated? Yes. <laughs> and here's, <laughs> I can't say that strongly enough. I mean, when you think about, and, you know, as, as we get older in our lives, we start to think, and, you know, I have aging parents, and I start to see the types of healthcare requirements that they have. Some of them can be very complex. And so we want well-trained specialists who have dedicated their life yes. to figuring out your problem, whether it's cancer, whether it's heart disease, whether it's whatever it is. You want a person who is an expert, and you don't want there to just be one of those people in the world. 
right? Mm-hmm. Because right. then you're going to be in a line. You want there to be many people in your own area that you can choose from. And so I think, yes, there's absolutely, this is what we need. And we need the right incentives to get those doctors into school, into the research labs, really doing cutting edge work so that we can live longer, healthier lives. Right. And I think you and I both agree that we want affordable health care for everybody, but yes. there's different ways about having that achieved and accomplished. And this blanket policy where everybody gets free health care and their taxes go through the roof is not the solution because you still have to find lots and lots of medical personnel, people that say, look, at, I want to go to medical school. I want to be uh, a doctor. And I think that there's you, you got to keep that incentivized and keep those guy those men and women motivated. I agree. And I'll tell you, I you know, I, I say this with my students in the classroom um, that we're not allowed to use the word free. Because Good for you. I think it's really a misnomer. I tell my kids that too, so they're probably going to resent that at some point. <laughs> but, you know, I, I say, look, there's no such thing as free. And so if you use free as part of your language, especially in the public policy space, you have unrealistic expectations about what you're going to get. And so there is no free. When we make things, quote unquote, free, we actually end up making them quite expensive. So, you know, in a world of scarcity, which is the world we live in, and this is the doctor conversation that you, you know, you were just talking about, we need to make sure there's a lot of doctors who are working hard to figure out, you know, how to solve our problems. And that, that it implies scarcity. And so if we have scarcity, we have to figure out how we're going to incentivize people to do that hard work. How do we do that? Well, we do it through their salaries. We do it through a lot of things. But collectivizing it and saying this is now free, to your point, it has to be paid for. So Mm -hmm. how do we pay for this? Well, through taxes. So you're just paying in a kind of very indirect and inefficient route. And what it does, it destroys the incentives for those doctors um, and nurses and nurse practitioners and researchers to do what God created them to do. And we don't want to mess up with that, you know? So, Anne, what if we just said, you know what, how about free Ph.D. economists for every family? (laughs) So a Ph.D. economist will come visit your family, sit down for hours, have conversations about your finances. Uh, At a certain point, you'd go crawl in a cave somewhere, wouldn't you? Probably. This would probably be the end of civilization, too. Can you imagine a Ph.D. (laughs) and econ in every household? (laughs) Run. Run from the building. But (laughs) But everyone's entitled to good economic advice and counsel. The human right. Exactly. And I think this is where our expectations need to be biblically grounded. Thank we you. don't have a right to everything that we want. We have to be, I think we have to stop this rights talk. It's, it's not that we don't have rights. We have rights, but it goes back to the beginning of our conversation. We have rights because we have dignity. And the government is here to protect the rights that are inalienable, life, liberty, pursuing happiness as we see it, creating families, living in communities. But we don't have a right to sound financial advice from some PhD who visits you every day or free medical care or free higher education or whatever it is that we say we want. Um, And so I think we diminish the value of things, those things, when we just say, hey, we've decided they're free. Mm -hmm. The government's going to make sure you get it. And, And frankly, look at how that's going for highly socialized economies. I mean, look at Venezuela. The promise of Chavez and Maduro was not suffering. 
the promise was equality, egalitarianism, and everybody's going to have a house, everybody's going to have the car, everybody's going to have everything that you want. If you look at the Soviet experience, experience same story. Mm-hmm. The promise was not you're going to go to the gulag. <laughs> the promise was a life where you're free from want. There's no life where you're free from want. Again, we have to be grounded biblically in our expectations, and then our responsibilities to society flow from that. Are they are they just going after and appealing to the herd mentality and just manipulating? What are they doing? How are they getting this passed? In American politics or in, in, the, well, in the world in, in well, general? Well, you know, like let's go back to Venezuela. And they're yeah. guaranteeing equality for everyone. Does the herd just go, oh, sounds good to me? I think it, it, I think it can work that way. I think that as, as, especially if things look very unequal or if things start to look like the wealthy have an unequal advantage. So if you think about Venezuela 30 years ago, this is a thriving democracy, topping the charts in economic freedom. It's a place where you would go on vacation. So on its face, you don't see anything that looks necessarily wrong. So, so your question is a good one. How do we get there? I think part of how we get there, again, is as people get more wealth, but they don't get the, the wealth in equal parts, then people start agitating and voting in for greater and greater and greater levels of egalitarianism and redistribution. And so my concern, I'm not saying the U.S. is going to be Venezuela, but I am saying it could be. If we vote in policymakers who are standing on the principles of the rich are wealthy and that's wrong and you deserve some of what they have. So if you vote me in, I'm, I too will make sure you get a car or I too will make sure you get a college education or whatever it is. Then you get on this slippery slope where the government gets bigger and bigger. And because the government can't live into those promises fiscally, I mean, what's going on in Venezuela? They're just engaging in radical hyperinflation because mm-hmm. that's the end game here, you know, before the whole economy kind of right. implodes. So I think, again, it always comes back to our expectations. And if you look at a lot of these historical world examples, they started out not from an authoritarian place, but from a place of a quasi-democracy. And they st- we start to vote in these kind of excessively collectivized policies, and they really harm our economy. But I think the real damage is they trick us. Mm-hmm. They trick voters into thinking you can get a free lunch. Mm-hmm. You can't. So, Anne, we're moving into the final round of Jeopardy here, so um, (laughs) this will wrap up our time. But um, here's a question, and how would I respond to this when I hear this in the debate, the discussions that are going on right now on on television with politicians that that when they're confronted with the the economy is it's it's good right now, it's better than it's been in a while, and they're usually their stock responses, but the economy doesn't work for everybody. And I think, is there such a thing as an economy that works for everybody? This is a great question. I think there can be an economy that works for everybody, yes. But I do think we should be worried about opportunities um, and, and an, uh, what I like to call an opportunity society. So I, I think we need to stop the focus on what, what do I have and what do other people have? And if it's unequal, can the government make it equal? I don't think that's the right focus. I think I think in an economy, there's there's no sure thing. So when Bill Gates had this entrepreneurial idea, he had no idea that it was going to work or take off mm-hmm. or be successful, right? But we need entrepreneurs right. to be taking those bets. Right. Um, so, but the question is, you know, does everybody have the same type of opportunities that some of our big entrepreneurs have? And I think that gets to some 
policy shifts that we could really change. So, for example, the way we run K through 12, I think this can either be a great thing for families if you live in a good district, you know, and you go to public school, or if you can homeschool, or if you can private school, even better. But what if you are the single mom that lives in Detroit? You can't homeschool, and you probably can't go to private school. Maybe you can go to a charter school. You know, maybe. But I think that these are where the opportunities early in life make a big difference. And so I think there are ways we could revamp some of our policy space and our institutions to create more, you know, better opportunities across the income range. And I think that would even make a more vibrant economy. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer, Anne. But unfortunately, you didn't uh, form it in the phrase of a question. Oh, yes. So I fail Final Jeopardy. You just got to remember that for next time. And thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. I I just learned so much when you come on. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do the show today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Dr. Ann Bradley has been my guest. Head over to tifwe.org, tifwe.org to learn more about Ann and see her brilliant writing. All right, we're going to take a little break. We've got uh, our two just ahead. Jason Stonehouse is going to be with me. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.